We're often told that the hallmark of an effective leader is the ability to think big picture and to delegate the task-based work to subordinates who are good at it. That may be true, but in today's tech-driven world, can business leaders still think of technology as task-based and also be effective? How much does a C-suite leader need to know about technology? And what does it mean to be a full-stack CEO? In today's Is There 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 podcast from the Graphic Machine Studio, we're going to be exploring these questions in what we are calling the Everything Edition. I am Patience Jones, and with me is Brian Jones. Hello! So, full-stack CEO... Brian, what the <laughs> heck is a full-stack CEO? There's a great article about the sort of dawn of the full-stack CEO from VentureBeat this week. And the four things that it outlines are a innate knowledge of back office and front office, the understanding of how business logic works and what data flow is, interaction of interfaces and experiences, and understanding the consumer and business needs. Now, that's a lot of really kind of jargony stuff, but essentially it boils down to understanding the technology that drives your business, understanding the data that your business produces, understanding how people interact with either your online experience or with your business in general if you're a brick and mortar, and finally, kind of getting at a very basic level what you're doing, like what your service is. Historically, it seems that CEOs have been seen way more as not necessarily figureheads, but organizers, I think is a, a way that I would characterize it. <laughs> I was just thinking they're sort of like the queen, who I guess is kind of a the penultimate organizer. The perception is sort of this person comes in and they're so gifted at being able to have a vision and direct people to realize that vision that they shouldn't have to be bogged down with things like how often do we purchase our office supplies? Who is our IT service provider? What happens if our email goes down? And more importantly, sort of understanding where to even look for what your pain points are inside an organization. This gets to kind of the basic idea of marketing at a very broad level, which is it isn't enough anymore to just sort of have an idea and present it to the world. You have to understand how that thing that you're marketing goes from inside the organization to outside the organization and like what the implication of that is. If I'm really good at selling shoes, that's great. But understanding how my ability to get shoes from the manufacturer, probably overseas at this point, into the country in a timely manner and keep the stores that sell the shoes, if I'm doing a traditional business, in stock. And then marketing and getting the people to come to the store and buy said shoes is a really complex equation. And it isn't so simple anymore to just have somebody that sort of has a very basic understanding of how technology works. So to play devil's advocate, though, why is it better for the CEO to have an understanding or a knowledge of how all those things work than to just say, you know, okay, I've hired the best imports person. I've hired the best distribution person. I've hired the best accounting person and they're going to go do all the stuff. And what I'm going to do is say, this is what I want the shoes to look like. This is what I want to do in sales. This is where I want to sell them. It's really difficult to run a business in 2016 and going forward without understanding the basic premise of how technology both impacts your business and the devices and, and components that people are using to interact with your business. And farming that out to a person, yeah, you need to have support staff. You can't do, this isn't an this isn't us advocating for you to do everything on your own without any support. It's Isn't it, Brian? <laughs> yeah, probably is. <laughs> but it is more that not having that technology, it's basically not speaking 
the language that things are written in now. And just as understanding the language where you're doing business is really critical to interfacing with the population, the same is true of technology. It's now part of the equation. I think what you're saying, which is what I would say, so stop me if this is wrong, you don't have to do it yourself but you have to know enough about it to know what needs to be done, to be able to hire the right people to do it, to know if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, to be able to have a conversation about it with a prospective client, a prospective partner, a prospective investor, so that when somebody says to you, do you have a firewall, you don't stare at them slack-jawed. Because if I were the person asking the question and that's the response I got, I might think, well, this is a really lovely person, seem nice, good business idea, but they can't be bothered to learn basic, basic technology stuff. And to think that you are immune from it, that you don't have to, to learn it, it's not endearing or charming at this point. It's really, really necessary. And more importantly, the issues of sales are most likely directly impacted or at least related to the issues of technology. So believing that, that you don't have to be, if you're running things, that you don't have to be somehow integral to that conversation is, is really a fantasy, I think, at this point. Which is either like, I think I'm too important to have to learn about that stuff. Or I'm terrified to learn it. I don't think I'm going to be good at it. I don't know how to do it. And so I'm going to cover it up with this sort of coy, like, this is a charming personality trait about me versus this is a major defect in my hard skill set. And more importantly, you're setting up a shadow CEO in my mind, because essentially you're leaving... You're leaving some of the most crucial decisions to somebody else, and you have no ability to understand whether or not those decisions are helping you, are not aligned with other parts of your organization, are maybe just not good for where you want to head. And it's not belittling anybody's efforts. It's more that it is just part of the equation now. Yeah, it it has to be. And when there were computers, but there wasn't easy access to all kinds of educational programs, it was a little more forgivable. If the only way that you could really understand how computers works was to have gone and gotten a computer degree in college, then okay, you know, I get that if you've pursued an MBA, you might not have that same education. But now you can get all kinds of education and training online, in person, in some in some books before it becomes too antiquated. For a small business owner, this is incredibly crucial and something that makes them more adept in this market because you're used to wearing multiple hats. And it's the large enterprise that's probably more susceptible to having people that are very isolated from understanding a very core component of their business. I don't know that that's true necessarily. <laughs> you don't think so? I, I don't. I think that a small business owner, yes, is wearing more hats, but also has, because there's just one of them or two or three of them, they have fewer hours in the day. So they physically cannot do all the things that they need to do to keep their business running. Because they're actually doing all the stuff. Right. So that's when they delegate. And that's what, you know, every small business assistance center will tell you, like, figure out the things you can delegate to somebody else. And that's great advice if you know how to hire those people and if you know how to review what you get back from people. If you knew absolutely nothing about bookkeeping or finance or accounting, you wouldn't just go to the yellow pages, pick somebody out of the list and say, okay, I'm going to trust you with all my business finances. And I have no way of knowing when you give me back my reports, my tax filings, my statements, I have no way of knowing if you have done what you were supposed to do, if you've done it correctly. That's not a smart move to make. 
it kind of bleeds into a little bit of what I was thinking. And for me, this kind of wraps up what I feel like this is about, which is, yes, you're going to have to bring people into the fold, finding your own set of questions that helps you qualify to make sure that the people that you brought on are aligned with what you're, you're after and what your goals are and being really honest in that conversation with people about what your concerns are. And if you, if they can answer those concerns in a way that doesn't make you feel like they're just telling you what you want to hear, that's really great. And I think it's, it's worth the hunt to find those trusted partners and those trusted individuals within an organization. But you still, at the end of all this, have to understand the feedback that they're providing to you. Otherwise, they will come to realize that it doesn't matter what they provide to you, that it, it is not valuable to you and you don't understand it. Or they'll think that you do understand it because you put up a really good facade and they will be totally and rightfully baffled when you come back to them and say, well, this isn't what I wanted or right. how come this doesn't do that thing? Because you made it seem like you knew what was going on. And I think in some ways that's the worst thing that you can do is pretend that you know what somebody's talking about. If somebody says something to you, techie, that you don't understand, ask them. And then when they're done explaining it to you, go and research that thing on your own. And now you have learned something new and you don't run the risk that you've just signed on to something that you really had no intention of signing on to. So that kind of leads me into like what's happening right now in that space, because that, that's a really great way of encapsulating, which is that the role of CEO isn't really a top down. It's like continuing to expand your knowledge base. And that mm -hmm. is kind of true at every tier of every organization at this point. Microsoft released uh, in the last week their chatbot, Tay. And this <laughs> was a bit of an unmitigated disaster too many because essentially it was this learning AI chatbot that became really racist and began to <laughs> quote really terrible things within the first 24 hours that it was operational. And this maybe falls under the category, why can't we have nice things? But, <laughs> but more importantly, now they've released the, they've open sourced this because, you know, when one thing is a spectacular failure, oh, what Lord. can you better do? But then open source this. So now people will be able to create their own sort of versions of, of the, the Tay project. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So it kind of gets to, for a tech company, this is Microsoft, and it's interesting to see the, the sort of machinations of such a large company at, at work. Because on the one hand, you have the people that brought you Microsoft Office and Windows, and then on the other hand, you have Xbox. And now it's like, we want to be cool and relevant again. So let's build a chatbot. And then given all of the, the knowledge that this company has and, and what they're capable of, of accomplishing, to see such a, a blind spot uh, appear in that they couldn't have guessed that people would try and turn this into a nefarious piece within the first day that it was around seems a little bit... Well, it wasn't, from what I understand, it wasn't impacted directly by any one person or group of people. What it did was it basically was programmed to study and assess all of the communication on the internet and learn, you know, what's most popular, what do people respond most to. So it was kind of the culmination of how we as a society have behaved online 
for the past however many years. Right. But I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that it didn't bother to, they had to know that that was sort of, there's this rich undercurrent of just seething rage that is online. <laughs> it's like a dark net powered yeah. chatbot. And to know that that is out there, that is not a surprise to anyone or it shouldn't be at this no. point. And they're Microsoft. They have more than two engineers. They could have reasonably <laughs> incorporated things that were there. And I, I use this as an illustration of like to the top of the show's thing, which is that this is when a person running something would say, okay, yeah. let's look at this from a multitude of layers. This not just this technology that we're interested in but rolling out. But we need out, an anthropologist and a linguist and a sociologist. And okay. let's think about you know, and, and within an organization, you run into these these situations all the time where you're so focused on the thing that's right in front of you that you don't have somebody else to your side saying like, okay, what about when somebody comes at it from yeah. this angle? And it's really critical. Yeah. I mean, it's only critical if you don't want like a crazy <laughs> racist neo-Nazi chatbot running around. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't? Whatever demanding. What do you have now? Uh, so Volkswagen, poor Volkswagen, but really poor Volkswagen customers. Volkswagen was uh, sued on Tuesday by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States for deceptive advertising practices. This stems from claims that Volkswagen made starting in 2008 about the cleanliness of its diesel engines and touting how environmentally friendly its diesel vehicles were. So shortly after it made the claims, people started saying, well, I don't know if this is really true. And I think in 2010, the Justice Department filed a lawsuit. Well, this is the part where the FTC says, on top of everything else, you made deceptive ads. So FTC is asking for Volkswagen to reimburse everybody in the United States that bought or leased a Volkswagen Jetta from, I think, 2008 to 2015. And so they're potentially on the hook for billions of dollars. You know, it's interesting. It's going to be the largest FTC deceptive advertising case in the history of the United States. But the thing that most fascinates me is that in its lawsuit, the FTC cites internal documents that it says it has from Volkswagen, where Volkswagen's marketers are talking about why they need to pitch their diesel cars in this particular way. And they say that their customers, and I quote, rationalize themselves out of their aspirations and justify buying lesser cars under the guise of being responsible. Now, if that isn't a sad description of everyone involved, I don't know what is. Because it's Volkswagen basically saying, like, number one, our customers are rubes. They are just so easy to deceive. Number two, it's Volkswagen saying, our cars are lesser. Our cars are not as good. And the only way that we will get people to buy them is if we have our customers subscribing to some other lofty goal. And just the phrase rationalize themselves out of their aspirations. Like they wanted a better life. <laughs> they wanted a better car. And now they're not going to have it. So while we pour them another drink, here's your car that doesn't do what we said it did. It's just all very sad. A little bit, yeah. I wonder, one, how many people even pay attention to that little tidbit. And two, if they do, I wonder if it will impact at all Volkswagen's relationship with the rest of its consumers. Takeaway from that is definitely email us forever. 
and yes. mem- internal memos forever. Yes, forever. Hashtag forever. So what do you have coming up next? So next is an interesting project from MIT called Kronos, which is their attempt to remove passwords from Wi-Fi networks because their, they, their general feeling was that by and large, passwords on Wi-Fi networks are not necessarily creating a more secure environment. So they're working on this path w- that would allow people to be, it would calculate the distance from you to the Wi-Fi router and gain accuracy about whether or not you are an acceptable user within the space. So the, the, the um. underlying goal is essentially people are just walking by on the street trying to grab whatever traffic is on the network these people wouldn't necessarily be allowed on in this particular scenario. It's still a little bit away from being able to allow us to log on and yeah. feel secure and transfer sensitive data. But what this symbolizes in a lot is the right way of thinking about what Wi-Fi is, which is essentially oxygen. And mm-hmm. that as we continue to embrace the idea that Wi-Fi kind of needs to be everywhere because we're our expectation is that we want to take that next digital breath using our device, using whatever connected devices that have yet to be invented. And this is going to, to sort of become part of the equation. And when you think about selling to people, when you think about your the kinds of services that people might want or need, as this becomes part of the equation, the kinds of things that you can offer changes pretty substantially because you're no longer tethered to the idea that like, well, I hope they have great broadband connection or they have a great plan with a lot of data on the back end there. We're seeing this too in the way that cities are beginning to to roll out uh, kiosks that offer Wi-Fi as you you wander around. But solving that last leg of the puzzle, which is increasing your security without having to have these draconian passwords like our own. That's, well, that's the thing though. Like I, I really like your analogy to oxygen. However, nobody can steal my oxygen. The Wi-Fi is the oxygen of the digital universe and not and trying to pretend like that's not a necessary thing that we need to make the whole ecosystem sustainable is not really real. I gotcha. (laughs) What do you have next? I have, ironically, the uh, Wikimedia Transparency Report, which was released today from the Wikimedia Transparency Foundation. And what the report does is it goes through, it's really interesting, it goes through briefly all different kinds of user data requests that it's received and copyright and takedown notices that it's received. And it tells you how many it's gotten in a particular period of time, where they came from geographically, what the reason for them was, and then how many they responded to. And I was surprised because from July... 2015 through December 2015, they received a bunch of what they call informal government requests. So that's anything short of a subpoena. It's a U.S. attorney calling and saying, you know, hey, can you send us these records? However, it's a bunch of those. They only received in that same time period one criminal subpoena and one civil subpoena, which is really interesting to me because it means that either the parties that were asking for the information didn't think that they would be successful getting a subpoena or didn't want to put in the time and effort, or there was a judge who looked at that same request and said, there's no way I'm giving you a subpoena based on that. So that was really interesting to me. 
they received four right-to-be-forgotten requests, and they approved none of them. And they received 20 um, DMCA takedown notices, and only 45% of them were granted. So it's an interesting little piece of data and info. Well, it's kind of this emerging component of the digital space of it's a new country of sorts where it's cross-border, it's cross-nationality. It requires a new principle of like what it, whose rights, who is right and who has rights. And more importantly, what right do you have to be to have your privacy and pieces of your life that are out there, especially if you're a more public figure, things that you may want to remove from the public uh, eye after a number of years. Pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I think your analogy is I can follow it. Unlike the problems I had several minutes ago, I I really like likening it to a country because it is it does have its own currency it has its own judicial system it has its own it even has its own taxation really do you think that this sort of is the continuation of i think it's a trend that's been going on for a while but it seems like the idea of the geographic borders are becoming more they're becoming almost not meaningless but they certainly don't have they don't restrict people in the way that they used to yeah absolutely and what's interesting to me is you can have a lot of treaties and you can have a lot of protocols and you can have a lot of user agreements. But at the end of the day, if somebody in one jurisdiction makes a request of somebody in another jurisdiction to take something down, really all you have is, is that person willing to do it? This new country with its new laws. Yeah. Like it's a, it's in some ways extremely democratic and in other ways it's like a million fiefdoms. Well, on that. (laughs) But it's fiefdoms where all the rulers know how to use technology. So I'm going to bring it back home and say, you're never going to be the ruler of your own fiefdom if you can't understand how computers work. Fair enough. We want to thank you very much for listening to this episode. For this episode and all the others that preceded it, visit our website at graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. And you'll find all this show and all the shows uh, that you can link to. And many of the most recent ones will have their transcripts in place as well. Would welcome interaction with us on facebook.com slash graphic machine inc where we will post this show and there will be a thread of comments that uh, come through there. Additionally, you can reach us on Twitter at their podcast is the Twitter handle for the show and at graphic machine is the Twitter handle for the studio. Again, thank you for listening and have a great week.